Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. As usual, there is a handout on the back table, if that would help you. Don't be afraid to get one if you've forgotten. The title of the sermon this morning from the beginning of Ephesians 3 is The Church is the Plan. The Church is the Plan. We've come a long way in Ephesians. It's just two chapters, but there's been a lot packed in. And I think a lot of the things which we will hear Paul say in this part of Ephesians, they will sound familiar by this point. Uh, many of the same themes from his symphony he's already been playing for us <laughs> will, will come out again, will re-echo to be sure we caught the glory of it. But as we get to verse 1 of Ephesians 3, it seems like Paul, if you compare it to a later part in chapter 3, Paul is about, maybe even as he is dictating this letter to what they called an amanuensis, sort of like a secretary who wrote letters for someone. Maybe even as he's dictating the letter, He's about to go into uh, talking about another prayer he prays for the Ephesians in light of all he's said. But he kind of stops himself mid-sentence and thinks, you know what, I need to hammer this home one more time before I get to that prayer. That's what's happening here. Um, In verse 14, he'll get back to what he was going to say. (laughs) And that's a glorious text starting in verse 14. We'll get, get there, Lord willing, next week. But first of all, Paul wants to assure, reassure these Christians in Ephesus. Remember, there were believers in Ephesus, a small group of them before Paul got there. But the church really got established fully under Paul the Apostle's ministry. You can read about that in the book of Acts, particularly chapter 18. But after that... As we read the account of the book of Acts, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, sent to Caesarea through a course of events, and then eventually had to make his way all the way to Rome, and now he's seemingly just stuck in Rome, awaiting the pleasure of Caesar's court for a hearing. So verse 1 starts out, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus... I'm not a prisoner of Caesar in the ultimate sense, but ultimately it's Jesus Christ in whose bonds I serve. Prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm, I'm a prisoner on your behalf, Gentile Christians. And then that takes him into the rest of his thoughts that we'll cover today. But you know, Gentile Christians, as Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, they could be greatly discouraged, maybe even have some doubts arise in their minds. If we serve such a mighty, exalted Christ, why is the apostle to the Gentiles languishing in chains, not able to move about freely, and facing a life-or-death scenario at at the pleasure, at the word of Caesar? If he serves the Lord he has preached to us, How does that fit? 
So Paul wants to remind them that the fact that he is a prisoner in chains changes nothing about the glory of his ministry and his message, the mystery of the gospel. In fact, the mystery of the gospel transforms even Paul's imprisonment into something that's glorious. But notice there, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm going to read Harry Uprichard very quickly, two very brief paragraphs, because he, he quickly brings it all together so well. He says, Here the allusion is quite pointed. It suggests that the Gentiles and Paul's attitude to them are the very reason for his imprisonment. <laughs> it's because he's the apostle to the Gentiles that he's now a prisoner. He's saying, Quote, Luke confirms that this was so. Detention in Jerusalem, being arrested there, Caesarea and Rome arose from that very circumstance. Accused of encouraging Jewish Christians to throw aside the law and charged with bringing Trophimus and Ephesian within the forbidden precincts of the temple, Paul was placed under arrest and eventually used his Roman citizenship to appeal to Caesar. And he lists the references in Acts. So it was actually an Ephesian Christian, a Christian from Ephesus, who people had assumed Paul had brought into the temple and defiled the temple with this Gentile. He continues, An interesting feature in Luke's account stands out forcefully and again is relevant to our understanding here in Ephesians. As Paul addressed his accusers when he, when he first had a mob seize him in the temple, as Paul addressed his accusers in Aramaic, it was precisely at the point when he mentioned the Gentiles that the anger of the crowd erupted and they demanded his death. Quote from Acts 22, 21-22, Then the Lord said to me, He's saying this to Jews who've quieted down when they hear him speaking to them in their own language. He's telling a story of the road to Damascus, how he met the Lord Jesus and all that. But then he says, then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. The Gentiles and Paul's attitude to them lay at the very root of his imprisonment. End of quote. Humanly speaking, and speaking really foolishly, in a sense, you could say Paul could have saved himself a lot of trouble if he just stuck with his own people. But even called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and that's why he was sitting in rented quarters, probably not very nice, in the city of Rome, chained to the Praetorian Guard, the guard that we switched out regularly, always chained to a soldier for like two or three years, waiting. Waiting for a hearing before Caesar's court, which could either free him or kill him. But this doesn't dampen Paul's zeal for the message he's been, with which he's been entrusted. He's going to remind us of why. The church is the plan. It's what everything in the universe is about now. It's been God's plan all along. And now Christ and his church are revealed to be God's amazing plan. We'll get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. But let's read verses 1 through 13 before we go further. 
Starting verse 1 again. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And it seems that he's referring to what he's just written in the past two chapters of, of Ephesians. I've just written to you briefly about this, but now I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm making sure you got it. Verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Big idea of this text. Because of Christ, gospel grace to the church displays gospel glory to the universe. As usual, to summarize Paul, you really have to say a lot in one sentence. So I'll say that again. Because of Christ... Gospel grace to the church displays gospel glory to the universe. But we need to work through the text to see how that all fits together. So first of all, verses 2 through 6, let's look at the gospel mystery now revealed. The gospel mystery now revealed. It's the mystery now revealed to the apostles and prophets. Look at verses 2 and 5. Paul first talks about himself personally as being made a steward of this gospel mystery. Then you find out in verse 5, uh, he makes it clear that he is one of a larger group who, who have received this kind of a stewardship, the larger group of holy apostles and prophets. And yet Paul highlights his own ministry, probably especially because he had a particular ministry to the Gentiles. Verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, the oikonom, uh, sorry, the oikonomion uh, of God's grace, it's, it's that word again that we look, saw in chapter 2 and talked about. Um, it's related to that word for a house or a household. So it's like the steward of a household would receive the plan from the head of the house about how to run things, the plan he once executed in his household. So assuming that you have heard of the stewardship, by the way, that's, we get the word, some people have gotten the word dispensation from that. That's what it means, the stewardship. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. 
how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. That is, uh, I believe that word revelation is that apocalypse word. It, it just means it was unveiled for him personally by direct revelation from God, direct communication from God. So he, so he knew something he didn't know before. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, as I've been writing these past few chapters. When you read this, you can perceive my insight. He's not, he's not bragging. He's saying, you need to understand what has been revealed to me to pass on to you. My insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed. There's that word again, revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the mystery is now revealed to the apostles and prophets. And Paul knows that the Christians in Ephesus, of all people, uh, they know he's an apostle entrusted by God's grace with a message. That message shook the very fabric of society in Ephesus and the whole province of Asia, which was devoted to the worship of demons, Artemis of Ephesus especially. There had been a riot in Ephesus by the silversmiths, the makers of idols, because Paul's message had shaken the the entire world so much. Their sales had gone down. People had been burning their magic arts, their incantations that they used to trust in, because they now trusted in the all-sufficient name of Jesus Christ. The Ephesians knew about Paul's message. Well, that message, Paul says, is a mystery which... It's not like a Sherlock Holmes mystery that we still have to figure out. But the scriptural idea of mystery is something that was hidden for ages in God's secret purposes. But God's now making it plain to those in the church, to those who embrace Jesus Christ. Mystery is something that it would be completely secret to the human race if God himself had not now revealed it. In one sense, this mystery is simply the full truth of the Christ, the Messiah himself, his person and work, with all that directly implies. He just calls it, in verse 4, the mystery of Christ. (laughs) That's consistent with how he talks in other letters about the mystery of the gospel or such things. So in one sense, it's really simple. It's, if you unpack Jesus Christ, his person and work, you unpack the mystery But Paul is here focusing on this gospel message, this mystery from one particular angle, as we're going to see more soon. Hold on to that thought. One particular thing that Jesus Christ means for the world now. But the announcement of this precious truth is entrusted to Paul, among others, as we said, as a household steward might be entrusted with his master's treasures. It's a precious thing. And the mystery was made known to him by revelation. Paul received this stewardship by a direct encounter with the risen Christ. This is how he speaks. He uses similar wording as he uses here elsewhere to describe uh, the primary event of this revelation on the road to Damascus. It was his conversion. It was also his call to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Notice that Paul is part of a larger group, the holy apostles and prophets, and they all received such revelation by God's Spirit, it says. And these are what we would call 
New Testament apostles and prophets because Paul says they now understand a truth which no one among all mankind plainly understood until Christ came. Even the Old Testament prophets couldn't gain a clear and plain understanding of what the unfolded mystery of Christ would mean, especially for the Gentiles. The Old Testament message, yes, it, we can look back at the Old Testament now and we see the Old Testament sufficiently uh, predicted the days of the Messiah. And it was consistent with New Testament truth. But have you heard the saying? It's a very good saying. The truth that was within, within the Old Testament concealed is in the new revealed. That's one good way of putting it. It was there. But it was greatly veiled, very shadowy, often communicated in cryptic things like types, pictures beforehand pointing to something greater, um, dark sayings, prophecies which are clear now were not so clear back then. We'll return to this in a moment. First, let's take a look at the initial revelation to Paul of the mystery of Christ. Turn with me to Acts 26. Acts 26, verse 12. Paul is recounting, it's it's the third time we hear the story in the book of Acts of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. Here he is telling his story before not only the governor Festus uh, and his consort, but also before King Agrippa and Drusilla. So he's speaking to nobility and royalty, but he's not ashamed to own his his Lord and King in front of them. Verse 12 of Acts 26. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, that is, to arrest and bring back Christians who had gone there. At midday, O King, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, he was called Saul, his Hebrew name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads, like the sharp stick that would prod an ox and keep him going, that that kind of a goad. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, 
See there, it was already in the Old Testament. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Jesus showed himself in his glory, which blinded Saul of Tarsus. As Saul was on the road to persecute Jesus by persecuting his people once again. We'll talk more about that later. But notice again, at the very time when Saul's heart was transformed in conversion, Jesus already told him, I'm sending you, which would have been the farthest thing from a Pharisee's mind. I am sending you, I, the Jewish Messiah, am sending you to the Gentiles to take them out of Satan's grip out of darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Well, we'll come back to all that. But, verses 4 through 5 now, this mystery, not only is it revealed now to the apostles and prophets, again, it was once concealed from our race. He said, verse 5, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Sons of men just means people. Humanity it was not made known to humanity and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Remember First Peter 1, where Peter, the apostle, says concerning this salvation, which you now experience, New Testament believers, the, he says the prophets who, who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They couldn't piece it all together. But, he says, verse 12 of that text, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. That they were, they were writing things, prophesying things, which would be plain to people in future generations in the days of Christ. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Oh, by the way, it wasn't just the Old Testament prophets and the sons of men who didn't know the mystery before God revealed it. It was Satan and his hosts who didn't get it. 1 Corinthians 2.6 Yet among the mature, Paul says, we do impart wisdom, the spiritually mature. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, speaking of this present evil age, this wicked world, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, language which speaks seemingly in the New Testament, of fallen angels. We'll get there, too. He says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And actually, the word there is, we impart a mystery and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Third, under this first point of the gospel mystery now revealed, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles equally share the benefits of Israel's Christ. 
Paul's looking at the mystery from this angle, that the, that the Gentiles equally share the benefits of Israel's Christ. Verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Actually, again, I'm not criticizing this English translation, it's just hard to translate sometimes. Uh, it's like three words that all begin with the same prefix. Soon this, soon that, soon the other thing. Uh, it's like we get words from this, like, you know, synergy or syncretism. Things, they're together, work together. You could say it this way. We have the same inheritance, the Gentiles have the same inheritance, the same body, and the same promise. This wording of fellow and same partakers, it all points back to the equal access that Paul just talked about in chapter 2. He made such a point of it there. Gentiles who believe in Jesus as Lord in Christ, they now equally share all his benefits, though he came as the one promised to the Jews. So this sameness, this togetherness, is talking about the equality of Gentiles with Jews in the one new man, the body of Christ, called the ecclesia, his Christ assembly, his congregation, his church which chapter 2 said is the temple of God and dwelt by God's Spirit. This, it was pictured in Old Covenant sort of trappings and things in Old Testament prophecy, but no one could really get it until Christ came and brought it to pass. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, that is, with believing Jews members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus through the gospel. So the same inheritance, that is, they inherit the same thing with the believing seed of Abraham and new covenant Israel, that's just talked about in chapter 2. The same body, the body of Christ, where there's no distinction of Jews who are near to God and Gentiles who are distant. Again, chapter 2. The same promise. The promise. The promise beginning in Genesis 3 of the woman's offspring or seed who would make everything right, the devil put wrong. Who would crush the serpent's head. That same promise was confirmed in covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then further scaffolding was put up to prepare for the promise to be fulfilled when God gave a covenant to Israel at Sinai through Moses. Then God made a covenant with David's dynasty as the royal covenant heads of Israel. But all this was building toward the fulfillment of the promise. And now the promise has come. The promise is Jesus himself. And all that in him is. And Gentiles. The nations. Not just the old covenant nation of Israel the Gentiles, as they believe in Messiah Jesus, they have the same promise that is theirs to inherit. And again, we've already dealt with these concepts in chapter 2, but Paul wants to impress us with the radical newness of this reality. And he wants us to feel the weight of the grace and glory that come with it. Remember our big idea. Because of Christ, 
gospel grace to the church displays gospel glory to the universe. That takes us to the second point of the text, verses 7 through 13. Don't just understand intellectually the gospel mystery that's now revealed, but now we see the amazing grace in this revelation. From a number of directions, we see amazing grace at work here. First of all, Paul makes this very personal again, verses 7 through 9. Even in the way God chose to reveal the mystery, especially to the Gentiles, look who he chose to reveal it. Grace that made the persecutor the preacher. Grace that made the persecutor the preacher. And this, in God's plan, sets the whole tone of the mission to the Gentiles. Grace that you can't find, for which you cannot find the limits. Verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister. The word there is diakonos. Sometimes it's that technical word for deacon, but it um, can also be used of ministers of the word. Uh, preachers are merely servants of the word. <laughs> That's how Paul's using it here. I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. God has almighty power, and it was by the, the, that almighty power getting into action in Paul's life that this happened. That's the only way it could happen, he's saying. Verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach. There's that word for preaching the gospel, specifically. Yang Lidzimai. Get the word evangelical from it. To preach the gospel, you could say, to the Gentiles, but to preach this gospel of the unsearchable riches of Christ. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light, to turn the light on, for everyone, what is the plan? There's that word for stewardship or dispensation again. For, for, to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Again, we'll get to more of that later, but Paul first marvels that he was made the primary servant of the gospel to the Gentiles. I was the very least of all the saints. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the risen Christ appearing in person to select people, he says the last person, that should tell us something too, by the way, about people who make kooky claims today, the very last person the risen Christ appeared to was me. 1 Corinthians 15, 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Or First Timothy 1 further toward the end of his life, people have observed, Paul states it even more strongly. 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord 
overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the chief, other translations say. I am the chief of sinners. I am the foremost. I am at the top of the list of sinners. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God saved Paul, not just to save Paul, but to tell you that that he won't leave you out if you come to him in faith. To tell you whatever you've done, there's grace for you. You really think you're worse than Paul? Who knows the name and message of Jesus of Nazareth? He knows, and he hates it so much that he persecutes the church of Jesus. Now, I don't think you get it when you hear, oh, he persecuted the church. What memories must have haunted Paul that only God's unspeakable grace could answer? What might he have laid awake at night remembering? What scenes played through his head? Well, Paul's companion Luke actually tells us in Paul's words. Well, before that, Acts 7, Luke is just recording the incident of Stephen who shone with a face like an angel in front of the council of Israel, the Sanhedrin. But he had he laid at their feet the guilt for killing all the prophets and now killing God's Messiah. Being stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, who always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, they've betrayed and murdered the righteous one. They who had received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Remember when Stephen was on trial for his life? Supposedly, he supposedly blasphemed, but he just tells them, what their guilt was. Remember, he enraged the Jews who were there, including Saul of Tarsus, and they ground their teeth at him. But then he looks up into heaven and full of the Holy Spirit, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Paul saw all that. And he thought it was a good thing to crush this guy's skull in with rocks. Acts 22, he tells the Jews that when Jesus told him to leave Jerusalem early on because there was a plot against his life, Paul protests. He says, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. That's when Jesus tells him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. 
Acts 26, Paul says to the authorities, again on trial, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. Either curse Jesus or say something that would be counted as blasphemy. I'm not sure what he means there. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul wanted these people to be beaten to a bloody pulp. He wanted them to die or to rot in prison. And he made sure it happened. And he wasn't satisfied when they were driven out from his territory. He went on trips to grab them and bring them back to treat them this way. No wonder he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. And no wonder that once Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus, he was struck blind by the sight of Jesus' glory. He didn't eat or drink for three days, Scripture says. He prayed. What kind of humiliation and anguish must have been his? Even as Jesus the Messiah was pouring out grace on him rather than wrath. What have I done? But to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. As Jesus said in Luke 7.47, those forgiven much, love much. Paul's love, by God's grace, Paul's love couldn't be quenched. The amazing grace in revealing the gospel mystery of Christ is a grace that even made the chief persecutor and opponent of the gospel the chief gospel preacher and the preacher to those whom he would have formerly despised in his self-righteousness, the Gentiles. He wouldn't want anything to do with these people. He would never go into their homes, let alone go to preach to them. So even in the most pivotal person chosen to reveal the mystery of Christ, the grace is astounding. But that grace didn't just target Paul. It targeted a countless host of those who were in utter darkness, who had no hope and were without God in the world, as we saw in chapter 2, the pagan Gentiles. So the end of verse 8 tells us, It is grace that brought the Gentiles Christ's riches. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Lavish grace in and through Jesus the Messiah. Lavish grace that is wealth indeed. Grace that reaches wider and farther than all you could measure. Higher than heaven, deeper than hell. The unsearchable riches of Christ. It's a word for being untrackable, untraceable. If you keep walking on the lip of this, of this sea, you will find it is an ocean. You can't circle it. To preach to the Gentiles of all people, the unsearchable riches of Christ. The Gentiles, those depraved and vicious heirs of fallen Adam. 
living under Satan's sway and God's curse. They were hateful, hating one another, Scripture says. We're all naturally born in that condition, by the way, it says. But they were worshiping and sacrificing to idols and demons. Israel's Messiah, God's saving king, was, as far as the Jews were concerned, from their own prophecies, he was supposed to come and crush these people in righteous damnation. They were the enemy. The uncircumcised nations, the Gentiles, they're the antagonists of this story. We Gentiles. But God's own son came first not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved in him. Jesus of Nazareth was lifted up on a cross in blood atonement. So whoever believes in him will not perish in God's judgment. God so loved the world, and we're so used to hearing it, that he gave and he handed over his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, whoever, Jew or Gentile, will never perish, but have eternal life. And this was not an afterthought for God, the creator, Paul says. God did not stop in his tracks at the last moment, his heart suddenly melting in grace toward those Gentile sinners. As verse 9 says, this was the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Verse 11, the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was the plan all along. But God didn't make it plain until the right moment. The Lord God of Israel had declared his name, his very identity before. But never before the cross of Jesus did anyone but God understand the lengths to which he would go to display the glory of his name? His name which he declared to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Exodus 34. And the cross shouts, God will by no means clear the guilty. Look how he pours out his hot fury on his own guiltless son who stands in the place of guilty sinners. Jesus, the righteous one, he's plunged under the waves of the curse. It's a baptism of horrors in body and soul. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God will by no means clear the guilty. He does not forgive you because he forgets that you did that. He forgave you because the sentence has been paid at the cross. But on that cross, Jesus did drink the cup of God's wrath and he drained the last drop. And now you can do nothing and you need do nothing but look to Jesus on that cross in absolute trust and you are united to his death. There's nothing left for you but God's grace. Doesn't matter what you've done in rebellion and evil and self-righteousness, even like Saul. You stand there right alongside the Apostle Paul with your sins buried in the deepest sea. 
God himself buried them. And in that redemption purchased for everyone who believes in Jesus, the cross shouts, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And that's all the cross has to say to you, believer. Jesus took your guilt, he nailed it to his cross, he buried it in his tomb. It's gone. Next we see that this grace is not just for us sinners, it's also for the watching eyes of all creation. Remember our big idea, don't forget it. Because of Christ, gospel grace to the church displays gospel glory to the universe. So verses 9 through 10, this is grace that put the church on universal display. Earth sees it and heaven sees it. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone, for all, all people everywhere, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The ministry of the apostles and prophets, including and especially Paul's ministry as apostle to the Gentiles, It brought to light for everyone the plan of the mystery of Christ. So the stage curtain has opened and the stage lights have come on. So that everyone, all people everywhere, without distinction, can hear the gospel and they can see its effects in those it transforms and they can understand what God is doing. And what he's been up to in the story of this world. Now those who don't believe the message scorn it. But those who believe can see it. And one day those who do not believe will be brought to see it, though they don't want to. They will fall on their knees and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there's a more awesome audience for this spectacle than all us human creatures combined. Through the church, through that vast assembly of Jew and Gentile saved from their sins, made heirs with Christ... Through the church, the rulers and authorities in the high heavenlies now learn the intricacies of God's wisdom. It's a word here for many splendor, the the manifold wisdom of God. A word that he would use for the intricate weave of a tapestry or something like that. Or a related, simpler but related word was used in the Greek Old Testament for Joseph's coat of many colors. (laughs) Now, all the colors and the intricacies of God's wisdom are suddenly flung out there for the angels to see in the church. We often just speak of angels as if they were of little consequence. The angels. Like a throwaway phrase almost. Um... But as Paul has already mentioned in Ephesians, the angelic hosts, both the fallen ones and the unfallen ones, they are rulers and authorities and powers and dominions, as he calls them. Ephesians 1. He said said there that Christ has been seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority. The same two words he uses here in Ephesians 3 for the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. 
These are rulers, authorities, powers, dominions who are awesomely superior in their nature to our current nature. Paul had used the singular form of that word for authorities. In Ephesians 2, there it's translated the power of the air. Satan is the prince of the authority of the air. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. When we get to Ephesians 6, we are told to put on the whole armor of God to stand against the schemes of the devil because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against just humans, but against the rulers and against the authorities. Same words. Against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So thinking of the evil angels, Paul Gardner says this. Paul here, meaning Ephesians 3, shows us how immense is the significance of the existence of the church because it finally reveals to Satan the long-term plans of God, plans that Satan's rulers and authorities had never understood until the establishment of the church. The church then speaks constantly to Satan and his cohorts, demonstrating to them that they have not been able to stop the progress of God's plans. In Christ, on the cross, they were defeated, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Though that defeat of Satan and his forces is is complete, their total subjugation to Christ Jesus our Lord will happen when Christ returns to judge. Meanwhile, the church serves as a constant reminder to everyone that Satan and evil is defeated and that God's rule extends to all people and Christ is indeed Lord. End of quote. That's glorious stuff, but it even goes beyond that. What Paul's saying goes beyond that. The church is not it, the church is more than a bitter reminder to the fallen angels. It's the mighty heavenly hosts who not only engage in an unseen and ancient war, but they also take utmost interest in the church of Jesus Christ to figure out what their almighty creator is up to. That is they're still figuring it out as they watch the church. Both the good and the evil angels. And so we get things thrown in by Paul as he assumes we partly know about this. 1 Corinthians 4.9 For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. The angels are watching as we're on center stage in our sufferings. 1 Corinthians 6 actually tells the church, can't you fix your own grievances without going to the law courts and civil disputes? Don't you know the saints will judge the world and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? What? Yeah, you're in Christ. You sit on Christ's throne with him one day. You will judge the angels. They will stand before you in some sense. But the angels are still figuring all this out. And so it is not fantasy to say we have an audience of angels at this very moment, especially in the assembled church of Jesus Christ. Paul assumes this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. He's talking about proper gender roles and reflected even outwardly in the church. 
For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Yeah, they're watching. This is not just a social club that you come to and you just have to worry about what everyone here that you can see thinks about you. The angels are watching us together. Puts a whole different light on how we come here, doesn't it? What we do, what we don't do. How quick we are going to be to get selfish about things, make it about us, and so on. 1 Peter 1.12, remember, he said, the prophets did know that they were writing stuff for you, the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Present tense. Right now, the angels long. They, they crave to know more. They long to look into this more. And for roughly 2,000 years of church history, the angels have been watching this drama. Even as they're involved in it behind the scenes, they're still watching it in awe. Regarding Ephesians 3.10, John Stott said, the history of the Christian church becomes a graduate school for angels. Good way of putting it. And so it means a lot when in Hebrews 12, it says, we haven't come like in the old covenant to a place like Mount Sinai, doom and gloom and fire and the earth shaking, but we've come to something greater. We've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're already engaged in heavenly stuff as the church and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that the church of the firstborn. I could, I mean, we could park there for quite a while, but we need to finish the text. Verses 11 through 12. This is grace that planned reconciliation through Christ. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized, that is, he, he's done it now, he's brought it to pass, in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, language of of free access to the throne room. We, who are by nature hostile toward our creator, we were doomed to be banished from his glorious light. We now walk into his throne room as his children and heirs. So Charles Wesley wrote, No condemnation now I dread, Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine, Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And this was God's plan from before he laid the earth's foundations. This is what Paul has been saying, what he's been so excited about through this whole letter. Why it's so hard to unpack? Because he packs so much in. He can't get enough into his words and his phrases. Can we hear again Paul's opening praise at the beginning of this letter now that we've heard the rest of what he has to say to this point? Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Now I'll adjust translations um, 
as we go here, according to what we've preached already. But starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. There's the unsearchable riches of Christ. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, a a stewardship, a dispensation for, for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession, since we were predestined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. This is the plan, and it's glorious. Remember our big idea, because of Christ, gospel grace to the church displays gospel glory to the universe. Lastly, verse 13, this is grace that works glory through suffering. Paul says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering, literally over my tribulations, (laughs) my distresses, my pressures for you don't lose heart over my tribulations for you which is your glory yep it's because of my ministry to you that i'm chained up in rome don't lose heart this is part of the plan and it's for your glory i get to take the gospel to caesar's household to the capital, one of the primary seats of Satan, the capital of the pagan Roman Empire. And I'm here on mission. Don't be ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Concluding applications, there are three. First, obviously, but essentially, praise the grace of God to undeserving sinners. Think about all that you have done for which God should reject you if he's just looking at you. And remember, we were all once that way, right alongside Paul. But Titus 3, 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What high privileges are ours if we are heirs of eternal life? God's grace to Paul was not only in forgiving him and giving him eternal life, but making him his servant 
on display before angels and men doing the work of the gospel. And you all have a role to which God has called you in the body of Christ. That is grace to you. You don't deserve to be here at all. But God has even given you a glorious task to do. Though it may seem humble to the world. Praise the grace of God to undeserving sinners. And secondly, feel the gaze of heaven and earth upon the church. Even the angels of God, though they're mightier than we and they're ancient as the world itself, even they are sent by God to render us service. Hebrews 1, 13 and 14. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Not only the holy angels, but the evil angels have their eyes locked on the church of Jesus Christ. The devil and his angels are aiming their fiery missiles at us, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, in those words. (laughs) Even as they're still reeling from their doom that the cross sealed. Why? Why do all the angels look at us? Because in the display of God's wisdom and glory, the church is the plan. And then there's the watching world of mankind. First Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Jesus said, Matthew 5.14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I just have a little light, this little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Because together we are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. We are the light of the world, because Christ indwells us. Luke 12, 8 through 9, Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Remember that scene in Revelation 5 when the lamb, the lion who John then sees as a lamb, Jesus Christ, he takes the scroll whom no one else in heaven and earth has the right to take from God the Father to unfold God's plans of redemption and all its benefits. And a new song is sung in heaven. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked... And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
Or the scene in Revelation 7, when there's this great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. They stand before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And it says all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's why Revelation has so many angels in it. It's showing you the heavenly scene of the church on display for the universe. Third and last, see the glory in suffering for Christ's gospel and church. I'll cut this short. You have more references there in your notes. But Paul's not the only one to suffer for Christ. He said through many tribulations we all must enter the kingdom of God. Many pressures, many distresses but Peter said in 1 Peter 4 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. Whatever God is taking you through as your shepherd right now, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death, it's all your glory. It's not something that you, poor you, just have to go through right now and no one understands. You're, the, you're part of the main cast in a drama which heaven and earth are watching. And the more intense the drama, the greater the resolution. There's glory in suffering for Christ's gospel and church. When you understand this, you can, as Jesus commanded us to do, leap for joy when you're persecuted. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for these people's patient attention. There would be more to mine here, but I think our cups are full for now. Lord, open our eyes as Elisha prayed for his servant who couldn't see the unseen drama and unseen forces at work. Open our eyes that we may see. May we glory even in tribulation insofar as it serves Christ's purposes in our life, as it conforms us to his image. Help us to encourage each other along the way. And as heaven and earth, particularly heaven, 
watches us with bated breath and cheers us on. Help us to run the race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Thank you for his cross, which he endured. Thank you for the grace that we will celebrate around his table this afternoon. Don't let us despise that, Lord. And Lord, please bring more in, whether they're seated here today or they still need to hear else otherwise. Bring more in into this grace, which only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.